Hello, I'm Pascal Abisher, and welcome to the second in a series of new podcasts from the Pandemic and Beyond, a project funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council at the University of Exeter to show how research in the arts and humanities is helping us to live through and make sense of and also recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. We all know that the pandemic has had a huge impact on mental health and uh, on everyone's ability to access arts and culture, but the difficulties in accessing cultural services, whether that's theatre or a reading group, dance or music, have been especially acutely felt amongst the most vulnerable in our society. So homeless people, sex workers, people in mental health wards, prisons or care homes, elderly people who are living on their own, or families who don't have ready access to internet connections and digital devices, or the digital skill sets that they would need to be able to access online provision. To understand this problem and how it is affecting vulnerable communities in the Liverpool city region, I'm talking today to Professor Josie Billington, who is leading the COVID-19 care project that is looking at how arts and culture provision in the Liverpool city region was affected by the pandemic. And she's examining the highly creative and collaborative ways in which providers have adapted to the lockdowns. We're also joined by two of Josie's key partners. We've got Lucy Geddes, who is the Partnerships and Evaluation Manager for the Liverpool Philharmonic, and Helen Wilson, who is Head of Shared Reading Programmes at The Reader a national charity dedicated to bringing about a reading revolution that will enable everyone to experience and enjoy good writing. So Lucy and Helen, you've both been on the front line of providing access to music and reading as a means of helping people who suffer from poor mental health or social isolation. How uh, has the pandemic really affected your work and the people that you work with? And perhaps we can start uh, with Lucy. Absolutely. So at Liverpool Philharmonic, we usually deliver a variety of music making programmes for people of all ages to participate in the arts, to develop their skills and improve their health and well-being. Um, and one of these is our music and mental health programme, which has been run for 13 years in partnership with Mersey Care NHS Trust to support the well-being and recovery of adults living with mental ill health across the city region. So before COVID-19, we were delivering a variety of different um, participatory um, activities and live performances in different um, mental health settings across the region. So community mental health settings and also inpatient wards and high secure services as well. Um, as a result of, of COVID-19, with um, hospitals not allowing visitors, um, community venues shutting for a few months and a lot of our staff being on furlough, that activity was all paused for, um, for a few months in early spring 2020. And we had to really look at the way that we could adapt the way that we would usually work to respond to um, the increased challenges that people were facing. So we knew that, um, from speaking to our participants, um, running service, um, surveys and focus groups that um, participants were experiencing a lot of challenges um, with their mental health. So um, low mood, anxiety, fear of going out, um, fluctuating emotions was something that were referenced a lot, but also um, financial problems and physical health as well and lack of support services. So we really tried to look at how we could um, 
support um, the people that we work with. And we began running online groups. Um, so participatory music making groups on Zoom um, and on Teams for um, people who are living at home, um, who might be isolated um, and people also in mental health um, wards, um, inpatient wards through Mersey Care and through um, our partnership um, with Cheshire and Wirral Partnership NHS Trust. So um, those, have, those um, activities have been wide ranging and we've reached over 300 people in the last eight months um, and have uh, tried lots of different things along the way. Brilliant, thank you. Helen, is that, is that sort of similar to the picture that you've encountered at the Reader? Yes, absolutely. Uh, at the Reader, we used to have around 700 groups running every week and around 1,200 volunteers supporting those groups across the UK. Shared reading is a model that uses what we would call literature, but I'd like to stress that by that we mean writing, reading material that has human content, so something that people can relate to and explore. We get people together, as Lucy was saying, in small groups in person usually, to read slowly, aloud, and pause for conversation. All of the reading is held by a trained volunteer, so people who perhaps lack confidence or ability around literacy can join in just as anyone else can. And also it creates a wonderful live experience in the room. The problem, of course, uh, brought by the pandemic is that we can't get together in person. So we had to completely rethink all of our delivery and move again, as Lucy was saying, to online, but also we set up a reading by phone service and what we call our lifelines reading activity packs. So these are easy to print, easy to download packs where we curate reading material and add some reading notes to almost walk people through it. We've seen really fantastic results with that as people can sign up themselves, have something delivered every week by email, or of course, to help take on that digital divide that we've seen, we've worked with lots of partner organisations who can distribute those materials, or particularly mental health inpatient services. We work with a number of trusts uh, throughout the UK, but particularly in the Northwest. So we've seen partner staff print out these packs and distribute them, whether that be on wards, but also throughout our justice settings as well, for people living in prison who had increased isolation uh, beyond anything else most of us ex have experienced recently. So we have seen great success with that, and we've seen, as I can touch upon later, some of the most consistent evaluation results be repeated during the pandemic. So around activity, helping people feel relaxed, giving people something different to think about, which we've all valued recently, having something important to look forward to. I think this is perhaps my favorite one, that people are still feeling more connected to others and in a different way, as well as saying that the groups and reading experiences help them feel better. Yeah, oh, that's brilliant. So you, you've touched there on, on different ways of solving the problems that you encounter when you can't get people in the same room together uh, and sort of feel the warmth uh, of, a, of a shared um, moment and space uh, and presumably it can be quite challenging to do things via zoom um, and and you found other ways of overcoming those challenges so um, Helen could you could you talk a little bit more about 
how you've managed to find alternative ways of, of working with people um, when you haven't been able to, to get to them through Zoom sessions. So you, you mentioned phone, and, but, but you mentioned also that those lifeline packs. Um, can you say a bit more about those? Yeah, absolutely. So as I think I said, the Lifelines packs are really carefully curated reading materials, which we then try and mirror the experience of being a shared reading group by having reading notes to take people through the material, but also prompt questions, perhaps help people explore ideas they might have about the material and feel more connected to it. I think it's really easy, particularly for people such as myself that have always found great solace in reading and, and was lucky enough to be supported in learning to read and being read to as a young person to forget that there can be real challenges for a number of people around that. So we've really worked hard to make sure that everything in our offer is really inclusive and helps people feel welcome and very, very accessible. So that might be anything from font size, but also down to the way that we communicate through all these different delivery mechanisms. It's, it's conversational, it's warm, it's about being a person, which I think perhaps it's easy to forget about that when we start talking about mental health, that bit of a bold statement perhaps, but I think that just means being a person in the world and what it feels like. So the Lifelines packs have food enormously popular. And I think, again, as I said, it's because they can be used in various ways. Someone can sign up themselves, but we've tried to take it on from all angles by having lots of partner organisations that we work with. For example, uh, an organisation in Manchester has been printing out the Lifelines packs and putting them in food parcels that have been distributed for people. We've got a number of care homes that have signed up to Lifelines and we've also created some bespoke bundles for them. For the likes of care home staff and um, people working on inpatient wards and also within, as, as Lucy was saying, secure settings, we started up a free do-it-yourself shared reading workshop to help people gain the skills and the confidence while we couldn't carry out formal training to use those packs. So if somebody was... Um, a key worker, for instance, they, they were in a hospital and they, they were still going to a prison. Uh, they, they could help people use those packs as much as was possible with uh, obviously all the restrictions we've been living under. That sounds amazing. So, so you've, been, you've been doing things to train people to help other people um, and also things that give people something very tangible to hold on to to print out and to share with other people so that there is a conversation about the things that they are reading that that is able to develop is, is, is that what you're saying is that something that you're finding as well Lucy is is that something that music can do as well definitely Pascal and I really um agree with Helen that um the arts are an amazing way to bring out the human in us, um, our um, our sort of true feelings, our true selves, our true identities, um, and to be able to connect in a group with kind of like-minded people who share a common interest, whatever that may be, whether that's reading or music or other arts, um, is so, such a valuable um, tool to, to do that. Um, and we've seen um, the impact of our online groups um, in, in lots of different ways with people rediscovering their love of music again um, where it might have um, previously 
been uh, challenging for them in the past, feeling um, comfortable to, to explore that again, or um, growing in confidence and believing that they've got the ability to do, to do something and to contribute to the group as well. So um, is, is there a sense that in lockdown, actually, some people have um, sought that sort of activity more than they did before, so that they they engaging with reading and with music more because they have more time, presumably, but also they're they're more isolated. Is 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 that what you're saying? Yes, we've certainly seen more people, um, new new people, join our activities than than were before, despite the challenges of on, of online. And I think for some people, it's perhaps been about finding meaning in their life and, and finding purpose. Um, we all uh, seek to do that in different ways and, and the arts can, can help us make sense of, of what we're living through. Um, and um, like I said before, such an amazing way to, to come together too. So, so what sorts of clients are you working with? Um, you know, to, to just talk me through a little bit of the, of the range of the people that you're engaging with. It's all adults um, through our music and mental health program, um, variety of different ages um, and people uh, living across the city region. Um, and it's people who, um, like I said, are both uh, living at home and also um, having stays in inpatient wards as well for a variety of different reasons. Um, we support people with brain injuries, people with eating disorders, people living with dementia. Um, but the thing about music is that it's something that everyone has an interest or connection with whether they realize it or not. It's all around us in our everyday lives. And um, most of us have an interest or, or like or dislike about music. And it's such a good way of um, enabling anyone to, um, to connect and to explore that further. So um, we've really seen um, a lot of different people and our musicians have been amazing at adapting to, to meet their needs really and their ideas. And do, do you find that um, your experiences over the past few months have, have changed how the communities that you work with will access music even once the, the lockdowns are over and the pandemic has ended? Uh, have there been any sort of surprise benefits of the new ways of working and, and um, other things that you've learned that you think you'll continue to do beyond the pandemic? Well, like um, what was reflected in Josie's um, uh, policy briefing from the COVID care study, we we really view digital provision now as a valuable addition to our services as usual, rather than a sort of temporary solution. And we're now, um, you know, in consultation with all of our groups and participants to find out more about how they would like to take part moving forwards without assuming anything. Um, and we are being uh, even more flexible in how we approach that and in how we truly listen to what's right for individuals and for groups and uh, to write because I think one of the beauties of, of online is that it's it's quite accessible for people who live uh, quite quite in quite spread out geographical locations. Um, it's also positive in terms of um, removing transport um, barriers as well. Um, so we really have had to consider that, and we're working really closely with with Mersey Care um, and their life room centres, um, which are based in multiple areas of the city region, to to look at. Um, when and how we run both in-person and online activities. That's brilliant. And, and Helen, is, is that similar for you? Have, you? have you also found that there are things that you will carry on doing beyond the pandemic? And, and have there been any surprises in, in what you found as a sort of surprise benefit, side effect um, of working in this way? Yes, absolutely. 
I think the key thing has been accessibility. So through having a mixed model of delivery, whether that's online groups, call on me, share these and by phone, or the lifelines activity packs, as well as our excitement about moving back to in-person, we can make sure that we can meet people's needs wherever they are, whatever their working patterns may be, and wherever they find themselves post-COVID. I think we've seen some enormous benefits for over 65s population, particularly around the Call on Me Shared Reason by Phone service, perhaps in part due to a lack of confidence or access to internet or the equipment necessary to access it. We've also seen an increase in the number of men volunteering with us, which has been wonderful. We're yet to dig into why that might be, but it seems to be as a result, again, of, of these different ways for people to engage and in, in ways that fit around various timetables and commitments. Oh, that's brilliant. So specifically men are volunteering more? We've seen that certainly in our children and young people's work. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, so can I turn to Josie now? Um, because one of the things that's so interesting about the work that you're doing is that you started off elsewhere. You're, you're actually a specialist in Victorian literature and, and you're the author of a book uh, called Is Literature Healthy? Uh, how, how did you come you know, to, to be the person who does this sort of work and how did you become interested in that relationship between the arts and health. So could you tell us a little bit about how the research that you did before prepared you for the work that you're doing now with the, the arts and culture providers uh, in the Liverpool city region? Yes, yeah, so I am a Victorianist and um, I, I specialize in people like Elizabeth Gaskell, George Eliot, um, uh, Leo Tolstoy and um, one of the things that all of those writers have in common is that they wanted their work to matter in the world. They, they didn't want um, to, to see their work not have an impact in the world. So I was already kind of primed for this sort of work. Um, and then I looked at the brilliant work that was being done by the reader. This is about 15 or 20 years ago when I first encountered this. And I actually went to visit an ex-student of mine who had been a Victorian literature student um, reading with a, a group of people um, who were um, living in a care home with dementia. I went to see her. But when I came out of the reading group, I was a convert to this um, uh, organizations which were taking books like those Victorian literature books out into the world um, and palpably it was making a difference it was having a, a making a difference and um, transforming people's lives in the moment and beyond and that gave me an interest in um, arts and culture more generally um, I was particularly I became particularly interested and I haven't pursued this so far in in what different things arts and culture can bring um, music uh, books, can they work together in a person's life as a form of life support? What distinct things do they bring? And I was actually working on a, a project, an application to the HRC for just such a project when um, COVID-19 hit. So I saw at first hand what was happening to arts organisations and I knew very well that the people that they were reaching every week and who'd come to rely on their services every week were, were not able to access them. So it just... It, I, it was um, just something I had to do was um, start a project around this and, and just see what, what the 
um, results were for, for vulnerable people of not having access to these really valuable um, organisations work. So, so you were exactly in the right place in your academic work at the right time Absolutely. to undertake this study that you're doing of, of the whole provision across that region. Now, what, what interests me is that, that underpinning your, your own research uh, and the entire conversation that we're having today it is that notion that accessing arts and culture is a really, really important means of improving the mental health of, of the people that you work with. Uh, and in your book, you actually speak about how literature puts people, uh, quote, in the right place for the awakening of feeling and the vital beginning of thinking, the right place, that is, for being more fully alive. Uh, and that chimes with something that, that Lucy was saying before as well, uh, uh, and it's it's come out of Helen's answers as well. So, so I'm just wondering, can you tell us something um, about how important arts and culture have been to the mental health of vulnerable communities during the pandemic? So you, you entered into the project with a hunch that it might be really significant, but what have you found? So, I mean, at the most basic level, and Helen and um, Lucy have already touched on this, it's been essential. Um, the arts have been essential in alleviating the effects of social isolation and loneliness. And um, many people have actually described their, um, the arts and culture they've accessed online as a lifeline. It's interesting that Helen's packs are, call, are called lifeline packs. Um, and it's very easy when people are down or low or lonely to, to lose a sense of the resources that they still do have within themselves, you know, a capacity to feel intensely and to feel, among other things, intense joy. Um, and encounters with the arts, I mean, Helen and Lucy have both touched on this, um, can move people, can surprise them into a very sudden recovery of parts of themselves they had forgotten, but which still exist and they, in some ways they need reminding but they need a reminder that, that isn't like formal therapy they need something that does take them by surprise and so it's interesting that in our study again um, I'm repeating uh, things that um, these wonderful people have already done and said but um, um, people talk about arts taking them out of the negative um, making them feel more alive and and also giving them a sense of of belonging to the world as well as to other people um, so if anything, I think there has been a renewed sense of the immense value of the arts and of um, these, these organizations who are providing it. I mean, that might be one of the great things that comes out of this awful situation. Um, a really new appreciation of the humanizing and connective power of um, arts and culture. And, and you've carried out a couple of surveys, haven't you, with civic and community arts organisations. So I'm, I'm just wondering what you've learned from doing that work, uh, what you found out about uh, what's working, why some things are working and, and others aren't, uh, and who these things are working for. So um, the arts and cultural organisations that Helen and Lucy both represent, I mean, they said something about how they did adapt so rapidly and so creatively and imaginatively to reach their usual as well as new audiences. Um, and the flexibility of this provision has meant that, um, I may be repeating uh, what Lucy and Helen have already said, but that, that, that they are reaching people who wouldn't normally, for, for reasons of mobility or health or location or caring responsibilities, have been able to access these services. And they're bringing people together across 
the country, the globe, and uh, it's been freeing in that way. Um, but there have been challenges um, and uh, existing technologies um, have been limited. Um, contact time is often shorter. The, the kind of personal things that go with in-person contact are often missing conversations, food, having food together, sharing food, breaking bread together. Um, so that loss of the, a kind of tactile nature of meeting has, has, has gone. And those organisations like the Reader and um, the Liverpool Philharmonic that have had most success often in reaching very vulnerable people um, ha have um, to thank in many ways their uh, existing partnership with, um, with health organisations who have often provided the online uh, platform um, and allowed them in various ways to reach vulnerable, isolated and disadvantaged populations. Um, so um, there, and there, there is also, of course, related to that, um, the difficulty of, of digital exclusion for, for many people for whom this is an entirely a new, a new world, a new universe. And I remember Helen saying to me, this cuts both ways because people are not accessing the service and the organization doesn't know who, you know, which, which people they're reaching. So, um, and, 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 and actually re finding those usual beneficiaries again is gonna be one of the big challenges. But a plus has been reaching new people, as um, Helen was saying. Yeah, and, and you, you've actually looked at audiences, haven't you? You've, you've also talked to the beneficiaries of, of these provisions. Uh, and I'm just wondering, what, what are the, the most important things that you've learned from the users about what it's like to be accessing these services online during the pandemic or, or over the phone or through a lifeline pack? Um, yeah, perhaps one of the, the most alarming things that's come out of um, speaking to beneficiaries. So these are kind of usual audiences rather than people who are reached via the kind of partnership that Lucy and Helen have with health organisations. One of the really difficult things is that people who were saying that they often before uh, lockdown would go to the Philharmonic or access music or museum or uh, museums or uh, exhibitions. Uh, have reported almost never engaging with arts and culture during lockdown, which is a very worrying uh, statistic, and rarely engaging at, at um, periods where restrictions were temporarily relaxed. Um, and they've reported lots of reasons for this. I mean, some of the kind of anxiety that is going with um, COVID-19 generally and, and the lockdown and, and the, the pandemic, the lack of motivation to do things. Um, but it's, it's also to do with the difficulty which Lucy and, and Helen will know all too well of recreating the experience online um, and the difficulty that all of us are facing, I suppose, of um, difficulties of connection, but the strain, the visual strain of, of screen time, um, issues with uh, cameras, just, just very simple matters of accessing uh, technology. Um, so there are a number of, of barriers, I think, to, to kind of usual audiences accessing arts and culture. Yeah, that's really sad because uh, clearly new audiences are being reached, but old audiences are, are being lost along the way. And, and the ideal would be to just manage to reach both the old audiences and the, the new users of, of these services. So I, I'm wondering what, what, in your view, are the most important things that we now need to put in place to help art and culture organizations be as effective as possible in reaching 
especially the, the vulnerable and disadvantaged people who are most at risk of, of mental health, health issues. Uh, and is, is this something that should be perhaps scaled up beyond the Liverpool city region? You know, could, could other parts of the UK, like the Southwest where I'm sitting, um, also benefit from this? Um, absolutely. And, and we've come up with kind of three clear interim recommendations, but we think they're, they're vital ones. And, and one is about um, arts and cultural org organisations needing support, expert advice uh, to retain the advantages of these digital services into the futures, future and, and also to improve them. Um, so this would involve help with platforms, products, um, those products which, which best suit their needs and the needs of their beneficiaries and things like online safeguarding procedures um, and, and this means both the workforce and the people who are likely to benefit from um, uh, this activity so just giving people the right equipment is great but it's not enough so um, there needs to be investment in, in, in training really. Um, one of the other areas that, that's come out very clearly is a need to coordinate the wonderful work that's gone on sort of ad hoc through the sheer goodwill of um, local organisations, um, some kind of backbone organisation or, or register. And I would imagine this is pretty common uh, across the nation that people are doing a lot of good work, but no one is quite coordinating um, the, the work of arts and cultural organisations in relation to, to vulnerable people. Um, and um, we also think there should be a lot of thought given to um, creating sustainable partnerships between mental health providers and arts providers. Um, as, I, I was, as I was saying, the, these organisations that have worked really successfully have done that in part because they're collaborating already with, with um, regional health providers and social care providers. Um, well, at the moment, there are many practitioners out of work, some of whom our study is showing are themselves suffering mental health difficulties because they've lost their own raison d'etre, their own kind of purpose in life. We have the most, the biggest mental health problem we have ever had in this country. We need to put the two things together. We need to find a way of doing that formally, building on the kind of great experience that many people have, but actually finding some kind of infrastructure for this to work into the future. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's it's all around connecting uh, people to the services and, and reconnecting parts of the provision that used to work um, and making new networks happen uh, and finding a way of coordinating all of that into something that works with healthcare providers so, so that the whole like an ecosystem yes. of, of care and yeah. of, of arts and culture can reboot after the pandemic. That's yeah. brilliant. Um, so so I'm, I'm just wondering, Helen and Lucy, how important is it to the work that you're doing that someone like Josie is actually able to step outside the, the everyday concerns that you have and, and look at the bigger picture of arts and culture provision in the region. What, what sort of impact does the work that her team are doing um, have on you and, and on the people that you're working with and what, you, what are you hoping to get out of working with Josie? The work that Josie and her team are doing really has validated a lot of the informal outcomes or that we have seen through our work at Liverpool Philharmonic and given them weight and validation um, 
including um, the recommendations that Josie just described um, around training in digital literacy, uh, cross-sector partnership um, and, um, and coordinated networks as well. And also for us, actually being part of this process gave us the time to take a pause and to reflect um, on what we've, um, what we've seen and experienced as an organisation and as, as individuals during this time. How about you, Helen? How about you? Absolutely, yes. I think one of the key things that Josie's talked about really mirrors work that we've done with social prescribing teams as well, that there is so much great will, there is so much fantastic work. Often the real, you know, grassroots uh, community-based organisations who know people, know the areas that they work and what the needs are simply don't have the kind of resource that larger organisations or perhaps structures could really lend to those outcomes that, that we're seeing for people all the time. So I think the potential is enormous. I think particularly the, the thing that you said, Josie, about the arts helping people to think and you know, you take that from an individual experience, but then you look at what that collectively means if we can't do that, you know, as a society and, and the organisations that exist within it and are made up of people. So we were lucky enough to receive some additional funding to do work with National Prison Radio. So, of course, justice settings in the northwest, but across the UK benefited. And there was a fantastic reader story, which is what we call case studies, came from that, from a woman who had her reservations about shared reading, but very, very generously gave her time to join in some groups that were recorded. And then the audio was used to make a series of programmes. And she had this to say, there are so many times when you're in custody that you're just going through the motions almost like a zombie just to make it to the next day. It's very easy to drift into that. I think what these poems do is bring you back to reality. Usually my mind works with things that have a definite answer, like numbers. And when you're reading on your own, you have a very one-track mind about what something means. But it might mean something completely different to somebody else. When we are reading together, things kept changing direction as we were bouncing ideas off each other. And that's really good it opens up your thought process. That is the most beautiful ending we could imagine. Um, so that's, that's all we've got time for, but thank you for just ending it on this high note. Um, thank you to my guests, Josie Billington, Lucy Geddes and Helen Wilson. The Pandemic and Beyond team are Sarah Hartley, Victoria Tischler, Des Fitzgerald, Rachel Nicholas, Benedict Morrison, Garth Davies, and me, Pascal Abisher. To get updates on the project, find out more about the latest Arts and Humanities COVID-19 research, and to access future episodes of this series, you can find everything you need on our website, which is pandemicandbeyond.exeter.ac.uk. Thank you very much. <laughs>